Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Kia ora, and welcome to Extra Time, a web-only program from Radio New Zealand Sport. I'm Richard Wayne. We've got a bumper program this week. We'll hear from the Silver Fern skipper, Casey Williams, who's talking tough ahead of the netball world champs. We all go out there with mongrel. We all go out there to win. That's our job. We also talk to Julian Dean, who's the last remaining realistic hope of a local cyclist racing in the Tour de France, and New Zealand cricket boss Justin Vaughan on the week's decision to appoint Ross Taylor as the new Black Caps captain and his team's tough opening tests. We have a test series away against Australia and then at home against South Africa. Uh, neither of those will be easy assignments, but they will be a great measuring stick, I think, by the end of the summer in terms of how far this team has progressed. With the countdown to the Rugby World Cup quickening, we talk to a BBC Wales rugby commentator and all-black flanker Daniel Braid ahead of the Big Blues elimination final about his chances of making the World Cup after a season peppered with injury. I know I'm, I'm up against it a little bit time-wise, being able to get out there and not a lot of rugby left to play. The Black Sticks men head to Europe. Captain Phil Burrows lets us in on some hockey trade secrets. You know, there's good bends and sticks still, but not as bad as they used to be, so you have to stick to regulations and stick companies with getting around them. But first up, in what's been a big week in sport, some little-known Kiwi teenagers have been grabbing the limelight on the biggest stage going, a football World Cup. The young all-whites are exceeding expectations at the under-17 showpiece in Mexico with a historic and flowing 4-1 win over Uzbekistan in their opening game. It's the first New Zealand men's side at any World Cup to win a match offshore. That victory was followed by a close 1-0 loss to Czech Republic. But with the USA to come in the final pool game and all four teams in their group equal on points, the young all-whites are keen to make more history. Murray Williams spoke to the New Zealand under-17 coach Aaron McFarland ahead of the decisive third pool game on Sunday. McFarland was well pleased with the turnaround in the second half and the loss to the Czechs. And the difference was we allowed them to take advantage of the first half and gave them the ball. And in the second half we were adamant that you know, if we're going to survive at this level, we've got to take care of the ball and position and not just give it away cheaply and be brave on the ball. And that's the message we told them, that you know, they weren't being brave enough in that first half. And connected to a plan to keep position, they did really well in the, in the second half. And uh, that's going to be, uh, I think, inspirational for them going into that third game. Where we're going to need to show that side of the game as well, the position side of the game. The Czech goalkeeper was really the difference, wasn't he? Five really good saves. Each one of those shots could have produced a goal. Oh, absolutely. I mean, we were all literally almost on our knees every time he touched those shots around the corner or tipped them over the bar. They were, you know, world class. He's the tallest player of this tournament, and that extra couple of inches proved the difference. 
Do you think initially you guys showed them a little bit too much respect? You know, a team from a European footballing culture and, and us from down the bottom of the world and perhaps in the second half realised that they didn't need to do that? I think you put the nail on the head, you know. Czech Republic are a big football country and we're a little on New Zealand and it's definitely that respect that well, maybe fear of playing that sort of country. But 1-0 down, which they have nothing to lose, you know. If, you're going to lose, you might as well go down trying. and uh, That's the kind of mentality we want these boys to have, to go for the game. But they've got to have a plan around it. It's not just, just short passing for the sake of it. We've got to have a plan around the position, and I think the plan works well in the second half. There were some very impressive-looking uh, balls put through there, just occasionally perhaps a little bit too much weight on them, but the overall impression was that they really knew what they were doing. Yeah, I mean, obviously, I think... The staff for coaching, the technical staff, we take some responsibility. But at the end of the day, those boys are living it out on the pitch and they're making all the decisions. And coaching staff just give them a framework to work with them. And, you know, Harley Taha coming on, bite for ball through for Tim. And unfortunately, his first touch, probably one of his only weak ones of the day, took it far. But, you know, they really seized the opportunity. I'm really proud of the boys for that second half performance. Yeah, it was, uh, I was watching with a friend who knows more about football than I do, and he was very, very impressed, I have to say. So uh, Uzbekistan upset the United States, so everyone's on, uh, what, three points, is it? So you're still very much alive, and having beaten Uzbekistan, you could presumably look forward to having a, a fair crack at the USA. Yeah, definitely. We, we want to have a, a crack at them. We're top of the tail at the moment, but equally, it's going it to be very interesting. I mean... A draw will take us through, win definitely. A loss by one guy with the other team's draw will end up fourth. So it's going gonna, it's gonna to be really tight. And uh, again, we're going to have to be brave in our pitch against the USA. That's the national under-17 football coach Aaron McFarland. His young all-whites face the USA at 11am Sunday morning New Zealand time. And this is Extra Time, a web-only show from Radio New Zealand Sport. The Silver Ferns lost 1-1 and against arch-rivals Australia in a whirlwind series before a short training camp ahead of the Netball World Championships, which start next weekend in Singapore. Silver Ferns captain Casey Williams isn't phased by their limited preparation time, as she told our busiest reporter this week, Williams' namesake, Murray. It's been very intense, but I think uh, our level, our standard of training now is intense. There's no, no room for um, slacking off. And I think for us, if we want to go over there and win, we need to train with a winning attitude, but also push ourselves to um, boundaries that we've never been to. What do you make of the uh, the, the new outfit and the emphasis on the, the, the hammerhead shark as opposed to the octopus? I think it's awesome. I think that's right up our alley. We all go out there with mongrel. We all go out there to win. That's our job. As Looking at the... Uh, head to Singapore, we all tend to concentrate on the old enemy that you've just played in and shared a series with, but England's uh, bubbling away in the background there too, aren't they? There's a lot of teams, there's not just um, England, there's Jamaica, um, Fiji, is honestly all the games are always tough and you never quite know who's going to win, but at the end of the day we just need to keep concentrating on ourselves um, and just you know get the outcome that we want. What did the Australian series tell you in terms of you know your squad and its depth and, and what's below the top seven, if you like? Um, I think it was a really good series for us to test our, our strategies, but also just to see where we're at and what we need to adapt and add to ours, but also a huge confidence booster for us with that win in the last at the Vector. Um, just going over there, having that um, mental boost um, can add a lot.
What does uh, Maria's long-range shooting do in terms of confidence boosting? I'm just asking my daughter's a shooter, and she looks back and says, you have no idea how far away that is. It is far away, and I'm glad she's in my team. Honestly, as soon as she gets it, you know it's going to go in. You can relax. If you've got a hard ball, you know, we take it all the way down there, you know with our shooters that the ball's going to go in. You almost have like a sigh and just go, oh, like it feels so much better. <laughs> yeah, a bit of a pep subject of mine, but is there, you know, in, in the indoor game and in the... Uh, they call the fast net, you get a two-point goal. I always figure those long-range shots are worth at least are worth two as opposed to one. Yeah, I reckon we should be making that two as well. We'd be we'd be winning by heaps then. Um, I think our shooters have increased their um, shooting range and their confidence with that as well. But also the ball that they're getting from our midquarters now is much more with love. We like to call it. Mm. So you're pretty happy with the way the midcourt's functioning there. Then? Yeah, I think so. I think we've got a great mix in there, um, experience-wise, but also. Just, they are so fast, they are so smart, and their skill level is so high. Mm. And as far as the Australians, they they were mixing and matching a bit too during that series. What what do you think they're going to be like? Yeah, I think uh, like both of us are going home to um, analyse ourselves and just have a look, tweak a few little things, but also you know that that game on Victor is never going to be good enough to win a World Champs, so for us it's to keep improving and just to keep giving it 100%. But you know you've done it overseas before, so you can do it again. Yeah, I think so. And I think now that we've had that winning feeling and we know how to win and just having that winning attitude of being confident and just having that little bit of arrogance about you but not overconfident. Any concerns on the on the umpiring front in terms of the uh, the contacts because the game seems to be getting increasingly physical? Well, to be honest, that's the way the game's going. We can't do anything about it apart from play our own game. And for us, I think we, we stick to being skillful. We don't get dirty. We're in there doing, doing our darndest to get the ball. And as I say, it's not on purpose. <laughs> it really isn't. <laughs> That's your story, and you're sticking to it. <laughs> good, you. good luck. I'm Thanks, sticking Casey. to that story. Got it. Silver Fern skipper Casey Williams, not a dirty player at all. I was at the second test in Auckland. It was my first ever Netball International, I'm a bit embarrassed to say. I was amazed at how physical both the teams got, though, especially the Australian captain Natalie Von Berto who was well dirty. Check around the next couple of weeks at the World Champs in Singapore. You'll see exactly what I mean if you watch closely. Murray Williams is a busy man. He now talks to New Zealand cricket boss Justin Vaughan. They discussed the decision to appoint Ross Taylor as the new captain of the Black Caps men's team this week in all three forms of the game. And ahead of fellow big hitter Brendan McCullum. The decision to appoint... Ross ahead of, of Brendan, I mean, how, how hard was that to make to your knowledge and why Ross ahead of Brendan? Oh look I think it was, it was a hard decision because you've got two very high quality individuals both wanting to lead the Black Caps side and both with real leadership skills so I don't envy the fact that John Buchanan, John Wright and Mark Greatbatch had to work through this, it was difficult because they always knew there was going to be one disappointed individual but you know, Ross Taylor's an outstanding leader, uh, and he will grow. I mean, he is only just really starting on his captaincy journey, and I know that we will see some really great things out of Ross Taylor, and he is just the sort of leader this team needs to, to drive the side forward and build on the good performances we saw at the World Cup and to really take the best of that and to try and you know, forge a real sustained run of success for the Black Caps. And do something about that test ranking. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, it won't be easy for us because really, I mean, not including the two test matches against Zimbabwe, we have a test series away against Australia and then at home against South Africa. Uh, neither of those will be easy assignments, but they will be a great 
measuring stick, I think, by the end of the summer in terms of how far this team's progressed. Now, the, the vice-captaincy, uh, presumably that's down yep. to, to John and Ross yep. at some stage. Now, could you see a role for Brendan in that, given the fact that he was uh, has been vice-captain but then stepped down and Ross took over from him? How difficult might that be? Look, I'd like to think it could work. I mean, in the end, that will be around... Ross and Brendan figuring it out between them and obviously John Wright will have a part to play in that but really you know, Ross has a number of senior players in and around him who will be able to call upon in the test match cricket he'll have Daniel Vittori in the dressing room uh, in other formats of the game there'll be a number of experienced cricketers whether it be Jacob Oram, Kyle Mills you know, a lot of experience uh, that he can call upon so there are a number of leaders in that Black Caps unit but in terms of the vice captaincy that'll be something that Ross and John will probably have to talk about over the coming weeks and I would imagine we probably wouldn't make a, a final decision on that until we announce the squad for the Zimbabwe tour Ross's Samoan heritage is, was, was touched on in the yeah. interview How, did that Way and all in the mix? Oh, not really. I mean, it's a, I mean, it's a nice additional, isn't it? I mean, I think it's great to demonstrate the multicultural side of cricket. I mean, we've had a, a, a pretty multiracial Black Caps team for some time now, with Maori, Polynesian, uh, Indian, Italian, South African, you know, a number of different uh, backgrounds in that side, and that's really, I guess, the, you know, what cricket is in this country. It's uh, all, all different races coming together and playing the game. I mean, we've got our first ever Polynesian captain. I think that's, that's great. I'd like to think it won't be the last. Mm. He made the point that he, was, he thought that he might be a bit of a role model, I guess, and that perhaps uh, Samoan participation in cricket might be boosted as a result because it already is in rugby and in rugby mm. league and in netball. Is, you, know, you think of Tata Rumangi, you can think of Maria Tudaya, mm. any number of mm. top athletes who are of Samoan extraction, but not so many on the cricket side of things. Do you think that he might be a, a role model there because there's obviously untapped sporting talent yeah. as far as the cricket as far as cricket's concerned. I'm sure he is a role model to the Samoan population and to the New Zealand population at large. I mean, first and foremost, Ross is a proud New Zealander. I mean, yes, he's, he's Samoan, he's very proud of his background. Uh, and if he can stimulate greater interest and more participation and, and more kids watching and playing the sport from Polynesian and Maori backgrounds, that's fantastic. And how do you expect, or how would you see his style changing? I mean, he's, he made the point that he's been more successful with the bat as captain than, than when he wasn't captain, so you'd presumably not be expecting to see much change in his approach to the, to the game when he's out in the middle. I think you're right. I mean, I think certain people flourish when they're given the captaincy, and Ross has shown that, that his personal performance uh, increases, probably shows that he takes the responsibility very seriously. Um, but I'm sure, you know, over time his captaincy skills and the way he approaches captaincy will evolve and change. He, he is still pretty inexperienced in terms of captaincy and so we understand that, you know, he is a long-term proposition to captain this Black Caps team. NZ Cricket head honcho Justin Vaughan there. And this is Extra Time. In the weeks to come, Barry Guy will be interviewing a number of rugby people and their thoughts on this year's World Cup here. This week, Barry speaks to the BBC commentator Gareth Lewis, a Welshman. Wales' best result at a World Cup was the semi-finals back in 1987. Wales are pulled with South Africa, Samoa, Fiji and Namibia this time around. And Gareth Lewis says there's plenty of excitement in Wales about the World Cup, but that doesn't necessarily include confidence. Uh, it's fair to say everyone's very excited about the World Cup. Everyone's looking at a, a very difficult pool for Wales. Um, they've only got a 50% success record of making it out of the pool stages from previous World Cups. 
This one's a real stinker again, isn't it, though? South Africa, the defending champions, Samoa and Fiji, who are Wales' nemesis teams, if you like, in, in World Cups of years gone by. So there is definitely excitement, but a bit of trepidation as well, and maybe for the first time in, in quite a long time, a touch of realism that if Wales were maybe not to make the knockout stages this time round, in the historical context, it might not be that much of a shock as it had been in previous years. Warren Gatlin, you know, help in it some way, a bit of hope? Uh, yeah, he's a. Uh, I'll tell you what he's done, Warren Gatland. He's made Wales competitive, very competitive in the games against the bigger sides. Now, there is a difference, and this is maybe the criticism of him in Wales at the moment, between being very competitive and actually winning games against the likes of the All Blacks or the Springboks or Australia. But they're a hard-nosed bunch now, Wales. Physically, they're definitely up there with the best in the world. It's a question maybe of whether the skills are there and certainly whether the strength in depth is there. I think there's a school of thought that if Wales have all their top players available and fit at the same time and they're all playing at the very top of their game, then they are capable of beating one of those big sides. But, but you know rugby as well as I do. It's very unlikely you'll ever have all your top players, given the nature of the game, fit at the same time. And I think that's one of the biggest problems for Warren Gatland, along with the style of play. There's a, a charge levelled at Wales at the moment. They've become a bit predictable under Gatland in their attacking style. And the challenge for him, I suppose, now in, in the 100 days building up to the World Cup is to try and bring out the best, the creative style and the creative talents in the players that he does have at his disposal. Uh, we know how well Wales can play in front of a, a crowd at the Millennium Stadium. What about playing in New Zealand, though? Um, it's a double-edged sword, that, I suppose. I mean, it's a, a country as mad about rugby as Wales is. I was lucky enough to be in New Zealand last summer, UK summer, it would be all winter, wouldn't it, when, uh, when there were the two test matches against the All Blacks. Wales had an absolute thumping in Dunedin. Dan Carter was on fire. Then up in Hamilton, it was an awful lot closer. You know, Wales put in a good performance. They got a really rare beast to try against the All Blacks as well. And I think the fact that they played that test match in Hamilton, they've got two games there now in uh, in the World Cup against Samoa and against Fiji. For the bulk of that squad, they'll be used to their surroundings. The welcome they got from the people in the Waikato was absolutely outstanding a year ago. So although it's a long way from home, I think people, the Welsh players, the Welsh squad and management and the fans as well, are looking forward to getting back out there and meeting up with some, some old acquaintances again. You touched on it earlier. Uh, if we just look at those key matches, South Africa, uh, Samoa and Fiji... You know, it's a pretty tough pool and, uh, you know, you, I suppose you could think you could win all three, but in, in a, on the other hand, you could lose all three. <laughs> I'll tell you what, I'll bet your money on Wales winning all three of those, if you like. Um, they've had a chance to beat the Springboks about three times over the past three years and it hasn't quite come off. So that would be a really big ask to, to beat the Springboks, who are world champions. Wales have only ever beaten them once in the entire history of the fixtures between the two countries. Hand on heart, yes, they should beat Fiji and they should beat Samoa, but they're almost being viewed like home fixtures for the Fijians and the Samoans because of the big Polynesian population in, in that part of the world. Wales should make the quarterfinals, no doubt about that. They should make the quarterfinals. If they get a kind draw, they could even make the semi-finals if they can keep all their players fit and available again. Now, is there interest that it's you know, actually going to be in uh, New Zealand? Oh, a massive interest, a huge interest. I mean, the affinity between the two countries on a on a rugby basis is enormous, given the shared history. We love having the All Blacks and the Kiwis over here, and those who are going, you know, luckily myself included, really excited about going to a country that really, really understands rugby. You, you can't walk down a street in Wales without somebody talking to you about rugby or talking about rugby. From, from my experience of New Zealand, the same is absolutely true for out there. And 
The other kind of dimension, and you probably won't want us to talk too much about this, is the fact that we know we're going to New Zealand. We love Wales, but we love our rugby as well. Rugby in whatever form it takes. And everyone is really, really intrigued to see if New Zealand at last are going to lift that cup. None of us here can believe it's been since 1987, since the All Blacks last won the World Cup. It's long overdue, and surely, surely on home soil, this is the time when you're going to at last break that deck, isn't it? Gareth Lewis, a Welsh BBC rugby commentator, tempting fate terribly there. Quickly moving along to a former All Black who's running out of time to take his place at the World Cup in the squad behind skipper Richie McCaw and hopefully ahead of his younger brother. In an intriguing twist of fate, the neck injury that struck down openside flanker Daniel Braid for more than three months also opened the path up for his sibling Luke in the Blues Super Rugby squad. And Braid Jr. has taken full advantage, with some even picking Luke as a World Cup bolter. Following a stint with the Queensland Reds, Daniel Braid returned to make two appearances off the bench on the end-of-year tour in 2010. That took his test tally to six caps, and everything seemingly pointed to Daniel as the leading contender as McCaw's backup. Murray Williams, who else, inquired after Braid's health ahead of the Blues knockout match with the injury-depleted New South Wales Waratahs at Eden Park on Friday. It's been a frustrating, what is it, 14, 15 weeks on the sidelines. I mean, a lot of pain initially, and then, you know, as I got to be able to do more, it was still um, even more frustrating not being able to get on the field and play, even though I was running around and, and taking part in trainings. But, um, you know, after a couple of false starts with club rugby and then finally a club game on the weekend, um, you know, I'm ready to go. What have you made of the way your brother's been going, and how much help have you been to him in, uh, in making the transition that he's been making so successfully? He's been going outstandingly well. He, um, you know, he's got all the skills, all the attributes, and it's just been about getting his opportunity. And he, he's he's really taken that. You know, I have been doing a bit of work with him off field on the computers after the games, and you know, we we are both pretty supporters of each other. Now, your own situation, you're there's a lot of talk about uh, understudy to uh, to Richie at seven in the All Blacks and. Ted's not saying much about that, but how do you see your your own chances with the time that you have left between now and the World Cup? Um, yeah, I know I'm I'm up against it a little bit time-wise, being able to get out there, and not a lot of you know rugby left to play. But um, you know, first step to get back on the field, and you know this weekend we'll see how it goes. Yeah, and the Tars, you would have had a chance to have seen in the, the way they've been going. A fairly patchy season didn't do too well in the first half here, but OK in the second, so that's probably more of a, a gauge of what to expect from them, you think? Yeah, you know, they, they are a good side. You know, they've made it through to the finals and they've got a good team culture, um, you know, a very good forward pack, a good scrum, and, you know, they, um, their halves control their game very well. They get through a lot of phases, and um, last time we played them, you know, their, their scrum almost dominated us. And, um, you know, when they um, hold the ball for a long period of phases, they can be quite difficult. And Kirtley Beal at 10 is an interesting prospect as well. Yeah, he's um, you know such a dangerous player. He can do anything, so we'll have to watch him. Daniel Braid there. This is Extra Time, a web-only show from Radio New Zealand Sport. I'm Richard Wayne. Time for me to do some work now. Don't worry, Muzz back one more time with Blackstick skipper Phil Burrows. Julian Dean is the last remaining realistic hope of a local cyclist getting a ride in the Tour de France, which starts next weekend. Fellow sprint veteran Greg Henderson has again missed out on a ride in the classic bike race. Henderson fell victim to his UK team Sky's British selection biases. And Dean is also no sure thing to make the start line for an impressive seventh tour with his team Garman Cervelo. I spoke with Julian Dean from his home in Valencia. Had 
quite a um, heavy race program the last two months in the hope of trying to prepare for the Tour de France. I finished my last race uh, last weekend in Holland, waiting now to hear if I make the final selection for the Tour de France. You've had a few uh, difficulties this season, I understand. What happened? You, you've been a bit uh, ill as well as injured? Yeah, I had a uh, concussion. Uh, I crashed in the end of March, had concussion, and that set me back uh, quite a while and um, had a couple of problems coming back, uh, health issues as well, um, flus and that sort of thing. Um, so there was a quite a big period there where I missed a fairly substantial amount of racing. Um, but, you know, everything's right now. The health's been good um, for the last six or eight weeks and uh, I'm feeling pretty good. So you just uh, got a battle uh, in a very strong team, don't you, to make um, next month's Tour de France? Yeah, yeah. We have, um, you know, our team is uh, a very strong team. Uh, we've got a lot of talented riders, world champion on our team, the winner of Paris-Roubaix, and uh, we've got two guys in previous years that have finished in the top ten in the Tour de France. So, yeah, certainly um, a team that's difficult to make the uh, Tour selection. You know, if they do include me, it'll probably be be more uh, from my experience than anything. Where does age come in with cycling? Because like in Team Sky, we just heard that Greg Henderson's been pipped by a much younger sprinter, a Brit who appropriately called Ben Swift. But surely, uh, like you say, experience actually counts for a lot in cycling. Yeah, no, definitely, uh, definitely. But, you know, you know, certain teams look for, uh, you know, certain riders. Sky, for example, is an English team. So they often uh, want to include a certain number of uh, English riders or British riders uh, in their squad for the Tour de France. So you know, for guys like us from New Zealand and Australia and uh, foreign teams, it's always a little bit more difficult uh, to to make the squad. Um, you know, my team, Garmin's American, and you know they certainly want to take a certain number of Americans to the uh, Tour de France as well. Where does age come in in terms of sprinters? Obviously, Greg's uh, almost mid-30s, uh, and this this young sprinter who's, who is British, you know, he's, he's a British guy, so I can understand your point about, you know, they're picking their own nationalities. Do sprinters fall away in their 30s, or, you know, are, are the hill climbers more specialised and carry on longer? What's the story with, with cycling and, and the age divisions? Yeah, you know, I really think that for sprinting, it's not really so much maybe a, a physical thing, when you get older, I think you still have the same physical capabilities when you're in uh, in your mid thirties, but your mentality is probably a little bit different. You know, you definitely take less risks. You know, you've had a, a history in the sport, and you know, often many of us have had quite severe crashes with broken bones, and don't quite take the same risks. I don't think as what some of the younger guys might. Obviously, you know Greg. He's, uh, he's tweeted that uh, he doesn't know what he's got to do to make the lineup. You must feel for him missing out on the tour again. Yeah, it's hard, you know, but, uh, you know, you, you, you've got to find a suitable team. You know, like I was professional for many years before I made my first Tour de France as well. And you've got to f- you fit into a team's objectives. Sky, for example, has, has Brad Wiggins, who's the number one British rider and, uh, you know, uh, overall contender for a podium in Paris. And I'm sure that that's probably where they are. Uh, looking for most of their success so you know I mean it's not that Greg's not good enough to go to the tour but you know just the circumstances I think uh, just uh, didn't uh, haven't really fallen his way and yourself you've uh, you know you, you, I think it was your best 
tour last time, wasn't it? Three top three finishes, is that right? And this will be like your seventh ride if you can make the team. Yeah, that's right. Um, but, you know, like I've spent most of my years in the Tour de France as a support rider for um, other sprinters. So, you know, I haven't always had a lot of opportunity. Last year, Tyler for, uh, crashed out and uh, you know, opened the door for me to uh, take my own opportunities and you know, everything fell into place and the form was good and I was able to get some, some top three finishes there. What next for Garmin? You've um, got a selection camp coming up and, and that'll be the final decision. Yeah, we're away uh, Monday, so we've got a couple of um, trials on Monday, Tuesday and then by Wednesday you know, we'll know the final team. You got any um, sort of uh, inkling as to how you know you're you're lining up in the in the running to make the Garmin first team for the tour? Yeah, I mean it's it's always hard to know, you know. I mean, obviously, you look at take Greg for example. You know, he had a good good season, good results, and he was expecting to go. So, you know, as if there's one thing I've learned over the years, it's uh, never to expect anything in, uh, in in cycling. All the best of luck to Julian Dean. Be a real shame not to have a Kiwi riding in the famous Tour de France this year. Hayden Rolston is the other local rider still in with a shot, but he's thought to be only an outside chance of making his HTC team's lineup. Well, this edition of Extra Time has been Murray Williams Tastic, so who better to finish off the show now than Big Muzz? Here's his final interview with the national men's hockey captain, Phil Burrows. The Black Sticks are a dead cert to qualify for next year's London Olympics, thanks to the two slots now available to Oceania teams, so this year is more about honing their skills with an eye on those medals. Phil Burrows is joined by possibly the most experienced ever side for a Four Nations tournament in England against Great Britain, South Korea and Belgium. Great Britain on their home surface, always good, and well, they're good as England now, they're combining with a few other countries, so um, they're going to be, you know tough. Belgium are, is, is a team that we've had good results against but um, of late they've been improving their hockey they came up to New Zealand beat us a couple of times and I think they've got a good programme going over there with the uh, new Australian coach backing them so they're always, that's going to be a tough side as well so the tournament's it's not going to be easy and it's going to be really good. I'm, I'm glad to see we're taking quite a strong team. It's good to have apart from Archibald's the only one missing so yeah it's going to be tough but um, the team that we're taking I think can, has got, can do the job there's uh, quite an impressive list of caps there. I think you're the yeah. top, and there's several others, and, and well into the uh, 200s. But you've some newcomers too. So tell me about the guy from Capital Matt. Is it Lahulia or Lahulia? Yeah, Lahulia. I don't even actually know much about him. I haven't played with him. I haven't been in the National League for a few years. So I haven't even seen him much. I've probably only seen him a couple of times. So um, from what I hear, he's got a solid flick on him, and that's always good to have in the team. And um, he's a, um, a defender who's making gains. And I think he was one of the guys that. Um, we took on the last tour, and I think they got more out of them than they thought. So, what's earned a selection for this tour? Which, so it's um, it's promising. Yeah, and no Hayden Shaw, so that's um, yeah, a yeah, nice yeah. thing to have in the back pocket. Yeah, for sure. Um, if, if you don't have a um, a good flicker in your team, you you know your miles international hockey is just going to be too tough because a lot of goals these days are scored by drag flicks. I mean, I know they've got the new regulations of the sticks come in, but um, from watching the guys at training, it hasn't really taken the speed away. What's the change in the regulations? What does that do? Oh, it's just a few regulations with the, the drag flick stick. There weren't really any on it, and the bow on the stick could, you know, pretty much be like a boomerang, so you could just sling it, and and it was pretty much getting out of control. Guys were getting up to 120 kilometres an hour from 14 yards away, so it was getting also dangerous. And guys that didn't really have good technique were able to flick as well. So it kind of brings in two factors: that guys with good techniques are the better flickers, but you know, you also got to be quite a good player. You can't just stand out there and have a big bent stick and flick goals and 
which was what was happening. I don't know exactly the specifications, but um, it's something that there's a new cradle. The stick's got to bend at a certain point, and it can't be, you know, totally bent. So you can't have customised no. sticks just for that purpose? Yeah. You know, there's good bends and sticks still, but not as bad as they used to be, so you have to stick to regulations, and stick companies were getting around them. They were weighting the sticks at the back so they'd flop over so they wouldn't get... So the little... Um, the little roller of such you had to put under the stick would, wouldn't get through, but now they have to sit in the cradle so those sticks will be ousted. I suppose every sport, the baseball had its problems with bats and crickets had its yeah. problems with bats yeah, over yeah, the years. Sure. So yeah, yeah. The training regime that's, uh, that Shane was talking about, making you fitter, faster, more agile, I, I can understand that aspect of it. What's the yo-yo test? I actually, uh, actually haven't even done it yet. I've heard about it. I've heard it's just a kind of like a beat test but you don't start from the bottom one you kind of start higher up and it's faster sprints but not as many mm. so from what I've heard the guys say it's harder but I don't think it lasts as long so I'm yet to do it as well so <laughs> not looking forward to it. So the, the the emphasis on fitness is it fitness first skill second or how, how do you do the mix? Yeah a lot of people say different things I'm, I'm more of a believer of you've got to be a good hockey player before you know, fitness comes into it because if you can run around all day but can't draft a ball, you know, you're not going to be much good to us. So I'm always um, sure you got to be fit. That's one of the things I base my game on is being uh, is being fit. You know, I just always feel better when you when you're fit. But um, yeah, if you don't have any hockey skills, it's a bit tough to uh, do anything out there and give us any anything. You weren't at Salt and Aslan show, were you? No. So was... what did you make of of what happened there? Yeah, I was quite impressed actually. Um, I think they uh, did really well and they had that great result against India, biggest result against them ever. So I think for the, the inexperienced team, that well, there was experience there, but there were some newcomers and that environment's quite tough to play in in Malaysia with the heat. And you know the travel, and just just a totally different environment to play hockey in, and um, I think they perform really well. Now the National League making that compulsory for Olympic selection—that's going to mean some interesting uh, matchup, and probably a lot uh, heightened level of interest in the in the tournament from uh, past se- past years, because a lot of guys haven't been there. Yeah. Have they? Well, yeah. Well, for me, I haven't played in it since 2003, so it's been a long time coming, and. Uh, and it just so happens at the tournament this year is in Wellington and I'm playing for Auckland this year in my first season so I have to go back and play in front of my hometown <laughs> for Auckland so you know, I'm sure mum and dad will get over it and uh, <laughs> it'll be a good tournament. Yeah, and as far as uh, looking ahead to 2012, it's, yep. uh, there's intense selection. Shane's mentioned that the Oceania uh, two places that should should be a shoo-in but uh, as far as London's concerned, I mean, could you go past England as, as one of the favourites, given all or Great Britain, given all of the uh, effort and money that they've put into their game, both men's and women's? Yeah, I mean, first and foremost, we have to qualify, and I'm sure um, we'll do our best, and we will do that. But um, yeah, Great Britain and, and England in that tournament, they're going to be they're going to be definitely one of the, the top teams. Um, you can't also go Australia and Germany. You can't write those guys off, but. I think England, the amount of uh, money they're investing in it and the improvements they've made over their hockey in the last couple of years, they'll be uh, definitely very, very hard to beat. Where's Champions Challenge again? Uh, Champions Challenge in Johannesburg, early to mid-December. A bit of unfortunate that you missed out on, on the Champions Trophy and, and that the women are there. Yeah, you're not. yeah, 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 it's a bit of a shame. Um, it's always a great tournament. You always, um, you know, you get a top, top games um, and it's always, yeah... Uh, a tournament that, uh, as a hockey player, it's really nice to go to. How encouraging has the women's warm-up been from your perspective? You've been watching their warm-up games? I mean, yeah, yeah. Apart from this morning, they lost in the Netherlands. Oh, right, no, I didn't hear that result, but um, I've been seeing their, uh, yeah, their results have um, been re- really good. Um, over the last you know, six months to a year, the team's taken huge gains, and uh, yeah, they're doing some good things with their hockey, and they've, you know, they're quite a, still quite a young guy. Team, I think they've still got some schoolgirls in there, and they're doing really well. Um, 
my wife's also kind of uh, in the mix as well, so I'm hoping uh, she can get to London as well. National men's hockey captain Phil Burrows. The Black Sticks also play warm-up matches against Pakistan in the Netherlands and in England selection before the Four Nations. Then after the tournament, it's back to Holland for two tests against the Dutch. And that's our show for this week. Thanks very much for listening. Remember, you can get the latest sports news on our website. While we'll be back with the next web-only Extra Time show next Friday. I'm Richard Wayne. Bye for now. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.